Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. We know that running a small firm is tough and ending the year with a profit may be even tougher. That's why we created Profit for Small Firm Architects. It's a three-module digital course and it's available to you for free right now by visiting entrearchitect.com slash free course. Entree Architect Podcast, episode 132. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm whether you're in the process of launching a startup or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. The road to success is a long and bumpy ride. For us licensed architects, we all dealt with the challenge of passing the architect registration exam. For those of you working to pass the ARE today, you're living that challenge right now. This week, I'm speaking with a man who has overcome many obstacles in his life and has achieved the designation of licensed architect. Today, as he rides his bicycle coast to coast, he is inspiring others to reach for their dreams. This week at Entree Architect Podcast, how to pass the architect registration exam with Michael Rasika. 
This episode of the Entree Architect podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Michael Rasika, welcome to the Entree Architect podcast. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great having you here. This, uh, this is a long time coming. We've been uh, connected back and forth on uh, on the internet and uh, been following your progress and you've been following mine. So I'm glad you found some time, especially what you're doing now. We can get into your story in a little bit, but uh, especially now how busy you are. It's great to cut out a little, yeah. you know, a little time for us here. Sounds good. Yeah, we're chatting today from uh, Walden, Colorado. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> and anybody who doesn't know Michael, you will in a second, and you'll you'll understand why that's uh, interesting and why 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 you just <laughs> noted where he is. So, uh, so let's let's get into that. Let's get into your origin story. Uh, talk about back when you discovered architecture and what that was all about, and why you decided to become an architect, and, and give us your journey to where you find yourself today. Yeah. So I guess I'll start as a kid. Um, I was always very, I guess, creative is the word. Um, I always had a lot of ideas and things, and I used to love to draw and build things and blocks and Legos and models. I built model cars as a kid. I was obsessed with that. Um, and then I guess I, I never really thought architecture would kind of, I knew about it, but uh, and I was always interested. My uncle is actually an architect. And so I was, I was always interested, but I never thought it would be a career. And then in high school, I was actually a special ed student. And um, I had issues with reading and writing. And so I was in special ed classes. And I actually almost didn't graduate high school because I couldn't pass a standardized test for writing. Um, but eventually I got past it. And so I graduated high school in New Jersey, uh, Bergen County. Right, right outside New York City. Where, I've always been, where in Bergen County? I, I went to high school in Dumont. I, 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 I grew up in Paramus. Did you know that? No, I, I, knew, I knew you used to live in, work yeah. in Ridgewood, but yeah. 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 Dumont and Paramus are, you know, walking distance. Long walk, but a walking distance to one another. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I graduated high school in New Jersey. Uh, after high school, you know, going to college was never really, I never really thought it was going to happen. It wasn't really in my cards. I did terrible in high school. I, I kind of hated going to school. Um, and then I worked a bunch of jobs. Uh, when I was about 20 years old, I landed a job doing, with an interior design company. Um, and they basically said, if you can learn CAD, you can have this job. And I very quickly taught myself how to use AutoCAD, just 2D drafting. Um, but I loved it. I, loved to, I realized I loved to draw on a computer, and that was something I didn't really know. I loved to draw by hand, too, but I really fell in love with uh, using the computer. Um, I then started taking community college courses and drafting. Um, at this point, I was living in uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut. And so, um, yes, I was in community college, and it was really a drafting program, not an architecture program. It was always kind of taught, like, you'll work for the architect, not really be the architect. Um, but I did exceptionally well in that. And then it kind of got to the point where I kind of realized I really, I needed more. And so I, I, in, I looked at New York Tech and I looked at the Boston Architecture Center. I ended up going to the BAC for uh, about two years. Um, I really loved the BAC. It was a fantastic program. It was just 
I just wasn't really set up for success. I was, I don't know, 21, 22 at the time, and I was working 45 hours a week and then doing school at night. It just wasn't really working for me. So I did that for two years, and then I ended up moving to Long Island, and I wrapped up my education at New York Institute of Technology, uh, Old Westbury campus. Um, and so, I, yeah, I was there for another four years, um, kind of uh, finishing my degree, and I, I had a fantastic time in architecture school. Um, I traveled a lot. I did a lot of extracurricular activities, extra projects. Um, architecture school was probably one of the... It was really one of the best times of my life. Um, I had never really, I always had miserable school experiences until I got to college, uh, and then it really took off. Where did that, where did that switch happen? You said that you were you were in community college and you were working with this interior designer, and you you fell in love with AutoCAD and realized that there yeah. was something there. Where did it go from that to say, oh, maybe I'll be an architect? And how how did how did that transition happen? Where you decided that that's what you wanted to do, and you found this this new passion. It happened, I mean, I was working for an interior design company, actually, and I ended up working for a local architect um, for a couple of years while I was doing the community college thing. Um, yeah, it happened when I started to realize how much I love doing this work and putting buildings together and drawing and thinking three-dimensionally. Um, it was, it was, I was bringing a lot of the work home with me. I was thinking about the problems I was solving in the office. Um, and I don't know, I think it was when I realized that I had skills that were never really recognized in the earlier years of my education, um, which then started to come out as I was exploring architecture. Um, was, there, was there a period in your life where, because you said you didn't, you didn't like school and school was difficult, and, and um, when I was going to school, where the kids who had special education, the kids who had learning disabilities, um, we're sort of guided towards certain paths and architecture certainly wasn't one of them. Um, and so, uh, was there a mindset shift for you? Was there, was there a time in your life where you thought that's not possible because people tell me that's not possible. And then something happened and, um, now you realize this is possible and this is where I'm going, whether people like it or not. Yeah. And I think it happened in architecture school and Mm -hmm. it happened in the design studio when um, I started doing the work and just being really passionate about it and starting to realize that um, I could have a career as an architect rather than someone who worked for an architect um, doing all their technical work. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I think I, it happened in ar- architecture school, and I think that's why architecture school was so important to me because it's kind of a, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I went from being a loser to, you know, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life uh, in architecture school. Yeah, so. I, th- that's why I wanted to go back to that, because I yeah. think there are a lot of people out there. Uh, I have kids with lear- learning disabilities. I have brothers with learning disabilities. Um, and, I, and today it's very different. Today, my kids uh, who have learning disabilities, there's no difference. They mainstream them. They just have additional help and, and very, very minimal. My kids mm-hmm. have very minimal, uh, almost really almost nothing but but they have friends who are severely learning disabled and uh and they are they are uh supported and brought through the same system as everybody else um for that specific reason to have that mindset that you can do anything you want you just have to do it a different way um but when we were going to school that that wasn't really the case uh maybe you know you're you're younger than i am so maybe it was transitioning at your time but when i was in school that wasn't that wasn't even, you know 
kids that had learning disabilities were just going on a different direction. They just weren't, yeah. weren't going there. Um, and I wanted to bring that up because there are probably people who are in that position that think, well, that's, I, I could just never be an architect. It's just not going to happen. I don't have the, I don't have the smarts for that. You know, I don't, I don't <laughs> learn that way. And so to see somebody like you who has excelled and is in a successful and is a licensed architect, um, you're a great role model for people who are in that situation. Yeah. Thanks. Um, another thing is I want to talk about bikes real quick. Um, when I was living in Boston, I was commuting to, I was living in Jamaica Plain, commuting to Cambridge. And I think I was on underground on the subways every day for about an hour. Um, and then one day my friend gave me a ride to work and I was watching all these people ride their bikes along the Charles river. And I thought, wow, it'd be great to just ride my bike to work every day. And so I ended up getting a commuter bike and I started bike commuting during that time in Boston. And I ended up like falling deeply in love with cycling, um, during that time. And um, I was also li was living in Boston, but I was commuting back and forth to New York City quite a bit um, just to see friends, to do family obligations for a lot of different reasons. Um, so on the weekends, I was in New York. During the week, I was in Boston. And then one day I said, you know what? I want to ride my bicycle from Boston to New York. And so I started researching. Um, this was like, I, don't, I think like 2002, 2003. No, it was 2002. So I started researching um, how to do that. And I ended up finding, um, well, I did that trip. I rode that bike ride. It's about 400 miles. Um, it was my first bike tour. And when I was preparing, I found um, all these journals of people bicycling across America. And I, got, I became obsessed with cycling across America and reading about it and learning. And I must have read probably like 30 or 40 different journals about people's experiences. And they're really just, they were just blogging about what happened day to day, logging their mileages. And so um, I put it out there um, that I wanted to do this. And then in 2005, I took my first cross-country bike ride. Um, when I left, I had a lot of resistance from my friends and family. Um, there wasn't really a precedent of this having been done before. I didn't know anyone personally, but I was reading a lot about it. Um, and so I ended up riding from Virginia all the way to Oregon in 2000, summer of 2005, and I wrote my own bike journal that summer. And very quickly after I was on the road for probably about two weeks, everyone that gave me resistance was like, oh my gosh, this is such a, an amazing experience. I was meeting amazing people and just sharing these great stories on the internet. Um, um, and so, yeah, that, that bike trip really changed me a lot as a person. Um, it, it, bike touring, I don't know, it's kind of taught me that... Um, you get to see the country in a different way. You really feel the landscape as you move through it and all the weather. And I love being outside and just you're outside almost all the time. Um, people that have a lot less education or money or resources just open, in some ways, just open their doors and hearts to you um, as you're cycling across America. And so I just had, I was just, it really, it was really an amazing experience. So I did that in 2005. Um, in 2000. Six, I hiked the Appalachian Trail for, I don't know, three or four weeks. Um, I went, actually went out pretty cocky, having just finished a bike tour across the U.S., <laughs> and backpacking's a lot harder than bike touring. So I learned a lot that summer. And then uh, I graduated school in 2007, and my best friends, my two best friends, said, hey, if you want to cycle across America again, um, we'll definitely go with you. Why don't we do it after we graduate? And so we ended up starting to plan that. 
And before um, we even left, I was wrapping up my thesis project for uh, my architecture degree. I decided that I was going to make it a one-way trip. And so after we rode from Bar Harbor, Maine, across all the northern states, um, we land. The trip ended in Anacortes, Washington, just north of Seattle. And then me and one of my friend, my other buddy, we rode our bikes down to Portland, Oregon. And so I showed up in Portland, Oregon, uh, on a bike. And my dad FedExed me my portfolio, and I had a job about a month later. And I've been living in Portland, Oregon now for, I guess, since 2007. So it's nine years. That is an origin story. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. That's a, that's a very unique one. And, uh, and it's inspirational. You know, not only uh, did you do the bike tour once, you've done it twice. Uh, and you, we haven't yet discussed it, but you're on the process in the process of doing it for a third time. Um, so, so once you got out there and you settled in Portland, uh, what happened then? When, what year was that? That was 2007. That was, that was, yeah, that was 2007. Um, so yeah, what happened? Um, I ended up I landed a job with a firm, a very small firm, and this is June. This was uh, September 2007, kind of at the peak, right before the recession hit. Yeah. Um, they had just landed land all these contracts with um, the city of Portland and all these university projects. And so they hired me um, as architectural staff to kind of help them manage all this, these projects. The recession hit, and so all the, everything I was working on was pretty much there was money available for these projects. The firm lost some work, but all of my projects had plenty of money. And so I ended up working... Um, full-time through pretty much most of the recession years. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to FreshBooks for their support as a platform sponsor of Entree Architect. Because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our overall mission here at Entree Architect. They recognize the need for small firms like us to build better businesses in order to be better architects. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use accounting software designed to help us small firm owners get organized, save time, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens out on the cloud so you have access to your information from anywhere that you have access to the internet. And I use FreshBooks for my own small firm, FiveCat Studio, and my favorite feature of the FreshBooks software is sending my invoices by email and allowing my clients to pay by credit card. When FreshBooks says that you'll get paid faster, they're not kidding. With the convenience of clicking a button and paying by credit card, many of my clients pay now as soon as they receive their invoice. And for those clients who don't pay right away, FreshBooks automatically sends them a reminder of the balance due at an interval that I set. So once I send an invoice, I can go back to being an architect and I don't need to chase down any of my clients. And Tim Lee of FreshBooks will show you how easy it is to send invoices by email on our exclusive video series Tim and I produced exclusively for the Entree Architect community. Check out this free video series at entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. There's no catch. There's no email. It's completely free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo and you will get the videos right away. There's three of them. Shows you everything you need to know about getting started. And then go to freshbooks.com slash architect, freshbooks.com slash architect and sign up for your free 30-day trial and give it a try. It's free. I suggest you just send one invoice and see what happens. That's how I got started. 
Just send one invoice to one client and see how it works. And when I did that and I got paid much faster than usual, I signed up for the rest of it and I set up my whole my whole account in FreshBooks. Freshbooks.com slash architect for your free 30-day trial. And be sure to enter Entree Architect into how did you hear about us. When I first got to Portland, another thing that happened was I had such a good time in architecture school. I, I got a little bit depressed because I wanted to just keep studying architecture. Um, and I just I didn't have the resources or the finances to keep going to school. Um, and so I was talking to one of my mentors and he said to me one day, he says, you know what? Rather than getting more architecture education, which I'm not sure you really need, why don't you work on getting your license? Um, at least if you get your license, you know, you could use that to make more money or, you know, use that as a different launching pad. And so I really took that to heart. And so I kind of treated, I started working on my exams um, and I started treating that, I used to refer to it as my poor man's graduate school where I was studying my butt off, working on the AREs. And what year is that? Uh, I started in 2009 mm -hmm. and I finished in 2013, 2013. Um, yeah, and so I started working on the ARES. Um, I ended up taking a two, almost a two-year break in the middle of it, um, just because I was getting I was getting burned out and exhausted. Um, I was working really hard at it. Um, you know, I went into the ARES thinking, you know, I'm going to wrap this up in a year. Um, I was reading, you know, I think, I think NCARB and the AIA have. I was reading a lot of stuff about people that just banged it out in a year. That wasn't my story. Um, I was, I'm a slow reader. It took me a while. Uh, I was spending about three months studying for each exam. Um, and I kind of went into it a little disillusioned with after starting to see how much work it really was. Um, and so I took a little bit of a break in the middle. And then the last year, they used to have this rule where if you failed an exam, you had to wait six months. And so I started doing the math. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to, I was going to run out of time because they gave you five years. Um, and so the last year, the, the entire year of 2013, I pretty much was just, I didn't, nothing really happened. I studied and I took uh, three exams, I took four exams that year. I failed one of them. I had to retake it. Um, but yeah, I studied, I worked really hard um, and I didn't see my friends. I checked out pretty much of everything. Um, and just focused on wrapping up my ARES. And so I got my license the end of 2013. And as soon as that was over, I said I needed another, pro like some, another project to work on um, that didn't involve studying. You know, part of the problem with the ARES is it's, I'm a highly creative person. Um, I like to express myself and put things out there and um, think about things in different ways. And the ARE is not, it's a very rigid process. It's yeah. a lot of memorization. There's no room for creativity at all. Um, and so I felt like I needed a creative project after the ARE was, was over. And um, so I decided to start, I wanted to start blogging. I like to write, I always have. Uh, even when I was in high school and I couldn't pass my standardized writing exam, I was using LiveJournal back then and, you know, writing 1,500 words about what happened over the weekends and sharing that with my friends. <laughs> and, um, I wrote, and then I ended up writing the bike blogs um, from my trips. And so I said, you know what, I want to get back into blogging. And I was actually looking at your old website design 
And you remember when you used to have that, um, all the list of all the architect blogs in the yes, sidebar? Yeah. Yep. I, was, I was going through that and I was looking at all those lists and just reading all the names and I just came up with this idea. I said, I, I just want to write a blog for young architects. And so I came up with this young, young architect idea. And so I started the young architect blog. And I literally went from, when I was done studying, I literally, I didn't stop working. All the time I spent studying, I now transitioned into blogging. Right. And so the first two years of young architect, I came out pretty strong, right out of the gates, just yep. transitioned right into it and was just putting content out there about architecture and things I learned. I said, I only want to write maybe three or four blog posts about the ARE and just say everything I need to say. And so I wrote those articles, and they ended up going viral and being shared all over the place. Um, I, I started writing about how I failed the exams and how I studied for it, and I just got a huge response of people thanking me um, for sharing this information. There were I shared a lot of my fail my my failure stories and all the trials and tribulations. Um, and I felt like I said what needed to be said, like I said what needed to, what needed to be said about the Aries because it wasn't a very straightforward process for me. Um, I had a lot of issues with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I probably at this point, I think I've written over 50 articles about the exam, um, about, not very far into it, after I started to see how much leverage and how much of a response I was getting every time I spoke about it, um, I used some of that content and then I kept writing more. I ended up putting out a book called How to Pass the Architecture Registration Exam. And um, it's not a study guide. There's tons and tons of study guides and they're all really good. Um, I never really wanted to get into the market of study guides, but it's really kind of more of a self-help book for people beginning this process. Um, talk a lot about mindset and how to think about the exams, a lot of the failures I had and the mistakes I made. Um, and so I put this book out there and that got a huge response. Every, everyone really liked it. Um, and right away, several people started approaching me saying, hey, I'm just getting started. Do you think maybe you could coach me through um, my, you know, getting ready for my first exams and tell me where, you know, make sure you, you know a lot about this. And so I ended up creating a program called the ARE Bootcamp. Um, and one of the issues I kept seeing with the exam, and this was kind of a, I kept seeing a, a lot of the people that I went to school with were starting the process, realizing how much work it is, and then abandoning it. Um, and I think part of the problem was with the, the architectural licensing is that I don't think architecture school adequately prepares you for it. Um, I don't think there's a correlation between doing really good in architecture school with doing really good on these exams. Um, it seems like architecture school, it's a very collaborative, um, there's a lot of camaraderie. Um, everyone's working on the same project, moving through a designated schedule and arriving at the same goal with their own studio projects. Um, you do this for five or six years, and then when you go to take these exams, it's a self-guided process, so now you're all alone, and you schedule your, there's no schedule, you schedule these exams on, on your own when you're ready to take it. And so, I created this ARE bootcamp program for, and so what I'm doing is I'm bringing five or six people together on a video chat, and we meet once a week. Um, we've got a dictated schedule, everyone's working on the same goal, um, I've created a 
syllabus. So everyone's studying the same materials at the same weeks and bringing questions and we're all talking about what we studied. We're logging the amount of time that we spend studying each week just kind of as a way to, to measure and gauge how much energy and how much work we're putting towards. You know, some weeks people put in a lot more work than others because of, of life pops up. Um, but yeah, we created this program and um, I've, I have a ton of fun doing it. I've met a lot of great people. Um, and it's working out really well. People are doing really well in their exams. Um, in some ways, I say, you know, like it's, it's a 10-week-long program. We, we meet once a week for an hour. I kind of, and it's really to kind of show you how to get up to speed with what it, you need to do to study for your first exam. And then after that, everyone's got a pretty clear idea about how to move forward and what they need to keep doing. So, so it sort of takes you from zero to that first exam, and then they're sort of on your own? Absolutely. And um, one of the things I stress, and this is a big mistake I see almost everyone, a lot of people make with the, the ARES, I, I made it myself, is um, the test is testing your ability to recall knowledge, to, to you know, tap into everything you read um, about a certain topic and give the right answer. That's what it's testing. Um, a lot of people... They, they gather all the study materials and they just read and read and read and read and they don't practice recalling any of that information. So throughout the entire boot camp, we're working on recalling the information as much as we're taking new information in. Um, so it's kind of a 50-50. And um, yeah, I stress that a lot. It's a yeah, big part of the program. That's, that's very interesting that, that, it, that, that it's about basically regurgitating what they want you to say. Mm -hmm. You know, they give you yeah. the answers in the, in the study manual and the study guides, and you just need to be able to recall that information when they ask you for it. What are some other um, tips? You know, because I'm, I'm thinking there's a lot of people listening to this and hearing about this. What are, what, uh, who are in the process of studying or about to study, what are some other tips you have like that um, that they could use to, to get further along in the, in the exam process? Um, you know, one thing I stress a lot, I wrote about it in my book quite a bit, is not to use other people's experiences as a precedent for yourself. Um, you know, I think very, very, very few people actually complete these exams in less than a year. Um, I think some people are naturally good test takers and they can sit down and read all these books once and, you know, take the test and do pretty well. Um, not everyone's that way. And so one of the big mistakes I see a lot of people make is looking at, you know, the guy next door to them that, you know, wrapped this up in six months and then uh, comparing themselves to them. And I think everyone really needs to figure out where the, what they can do realistically. Um, everyone in my program is working 40 hours a week. Most people have kids. Um, that 20, the year 2013, when I did nothing but study, I was studying, uh, I was working 40 hours a week and then, you know, studying an extra 15 to 20 hours uh, for most of that year and just finding that extra time. And so I think just being realistic with what you can accomplish. Um, it's not, a, on average, it takes two and a half years. That's the average it takes to get through all of these exams. So, so but you're, you're still recommending that they set deadlines. They just need to set realistic deadlines based on who they are individually, not based yeah. on somebody else's deadlines. Absolutely. And my 10-week course, um, it, it factors in working for you. Yeah, we're spending 10 weeks studying for the first exam. Um, 
that's kind of what I use. It's just kind of a ballpark. Some people in the program actually take their exams a little early. Most people actually take it around week 14 just to factor in, you know, uh, family obligations and stuff that pops up in the office. Because, yeah. I mean, life happens, you know, there's, right. it's inevitable that you're going to be disrupted. But I think that's just, such a great, such a great tool that you've created because that's probably the biggest weakness of the AREs is the unlimited opportunity to take the exam. Um, I was, when I took the exam, it was the first year of that new uh, process where it was no longer that one time, one, once per year. It was now whenever you wanted to take it, you just schedule them to take them. Um, that was my biggest barrier was mm. me, was that, yeah. you know, that incentive and that procrastination to finally get down and do it. And so um, you need some sort of accountability and some uh, deadlines and some goals in order to get through it. It's just a requirement to get through the exam is to get that mindset shift uh, for that stuff to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. such a, a great, a great uh, program that you put together. Do they still, do the members who are in the program, do they st stay communicating once they leave your program? Do they, do they continue uh, supporting one another and sort of updating each other on each other's progress? I imagine that these people get very close, you know, and bond throughout the process of being in your program. Yeah, we all get to know each other really well. Um, and yeah, that does happen. What actually happens too is we meet once a week um, on Sundays, but then during the week, I, I let them, I, we do it on GoToMeeting. I let them use the GoToMeeting account. They're meeting up one-on-one -on -one or a couple of people at a time and just working on practice questions to, with each other. And what they do is um, one person will read the question and then they take turns on going first. Um, and then not only are they giving the answer, but their logic on why they chose that answer. And so sometimes hearing why someone chose the right answer and the reason why they chose it really helps you inform and uh, how you answer the questions. It's just, in some ways, it's another tool for learning. So yeah, the people are working together. A lot of great relationships are being made. I always say, once you take my program, you're in it forever. And I have a private Facebook group. Um, you know, I got a lot of, some of, the, some of the ideas for this program I actually got from you and your, uh, your Architects Academy. Um, like a private Facebook group, um, you're in it forever. I'm feeding. I'm, I have some practice questions I wrote myself that I'm dripping out to them over time. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been a really it's been a lot of fun. And the program's grown and changed and shifted a lot uh, as I've been running it. But I've been I did the first one about a year ago, and I think I've done I don't know five or six groups at this point. Yeah, and and uh, does is that how you are now? Uh, basically funding your trip? I mean, because right now you are a licensed architect. You have a practice in Portland. You picked up, you know, 30 days ago or whatever, um, yeah. and you decided to do this trip again. You left right after the AIA convention in Virginia and headed west. Uh, how are you doing that now that you're, you're you know, a practicing architect? So uh, I guess I'm going to back up a little bit and talk yeah. about my professional career. Um, so I worked for the architecture firm that I got hired at for about four or five years. And then in 2011, I, I, I designed a building for the Portland Parks Bureau. I worked on this project for, I don't know, a year and a half. Uh, we actually, actually designed it twice. It was going to be a renovation at one point. And the day I went to go in for permits, they shelved the project and then came back a month later and said, we're going to scrap those, the, the old existing buildings and just start with a new construction. Um, 
And so I worked, I finished this project, and then that, when that building was getting ready, it was actually went out to bid. They had their contractor on board. Um, the firm was starting to run out of work for me. And the city found out about that, and they asked me, uh, they offered me a job as a project manager working for the city of Portland to help them get this project built and to do the CA and to kind of play the role of the owner's rep. Um, and so I got hired by the city of Portland Parks Bureau. Um, we finished that building, and then after that project was over, I leveraged myself into the city of Portland facilities. Um, I worked for about, I think, yeah, about four years with them. I was mostly doing projects for the Portland Police Bureau, um, playing the role of the project manager, owner's rep. I was the middleman between the police officers and an architect or a contractor. Um, and I had a lot of fun. It was a great, it was a great uh, experience. And then um, as a young architect, I put my book out. As a young architect, started to uh, just get more popular. Um, I felt like I was, I was blogging and working on all my extracurricular activities. Um, I, was taking pro I was working with a builder. Um, I have one builder I really like working with. And so I was doing projects for him. Um, I was just so busy with everything going on, and it kind of got to the point where I was just, uh, I was getting a little frustrated with my job. I felt like I couldn't, um, I don't know, it was kind of time for me to move on. I had learned a lot. I had grown more in this job than any other, um, but I felt like I needed, I wasn't, I kind of needed new experiences. And so then I ended up, uh, I also decided the summer of 2016, I was going to bicycle across the country, and I decided that about two years ago. Um, in a joke one day, I, I put it on Facebook, I said, the summer of 2016, I'm bicycling across America, so I'm not attending any weddings, baby, baby <laughs> events, or funerals, so <laughs> just so you know. So book it. <laughs> yeah. And so I knew I was taking this bike trip this summer, and so I ended up leaving my city job in September um, just to work on Young Architect, and I had a couple of construction projects going on, and, and to get ready for this bike tour. And so... Yeah, right after the AIA convention, I had, before I left, I mailed my bike to Yorktown, Virginia. And um, a couple days after the Philadelphia convention, I started cycling back to Oregon. And so right now I've been on the road for today's day 50. I think I've ridden 2,800 miles at this point. Um, and yeah, I'm in the middle of a bike tour. And, and I've been running the ARE boot camp while I've been doing it, too. And so around Friday, I start worrying where I'm going to get <laughs> Wi-Fi access. And then uh, I either take a long day or a short day, and I somehow land somewhere there's Wi-Fi. But I've been running my programs and working while I've been on the road. Yeah. Yeah, I should have asked my, my, um, my son, Henry. He's 11, and he's following you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I see all his... Uh... <laughs> yeah. And so he's a big Dude Robot fan. Actually, yeah. he wants me to ask you where Dude, Dude Robot came from. So about, explain, what, explain what Dude Rob, Robot is and then where it came from. Okay, so I, um, I started Young Architect, and I've, it's, I've learned so much about blogging and how the internet works. Um, and I had my old bike blogs on a site that was hosting other bicycle journals, but I had very minimal, like I couldn't customize anything, and I was, was kind of locked in. And I decided at one point that I was going to build my own bicycle, bicycle touring website as kind of my second little side project from Young Architect. Um, 
And so I bought the domain Coast to Coast Bike Ride. So it's Coast, the number two, Coast Bike Ride dot com. And so I moved all my journals off of the other site and onto my own domain. Um, and so I, I have, and I've been blogging there this summer. The robot came from, one of my friends drew it for me probably in 2003. Uh, I asked her to draw a picture of a robot for me riding a bicycle. And so I used that robot um, on my business card for, um, for all these trips I make business cards because I meet so many people along the road. Um, I, I have a little diagram of a, ma- of a US map with a, a red line going through showing my route. And so I make business cards for all these trips. And so I used the robot on my, my previous business cards. And then for this summer, I ended up um, taking some of those robot graphics and kind of updating them. And um, yeah, I've been, I've been, and so I've got this one graphic. It's a square of just the robot's face. And I've been branding everything with it, with graphics and the entire website. And sometimes I post on Instagram and I put a kind of a robot watermark on it. And um, I also ended up printing out I bought probably 30 or 40 pounds of robot stickers in all different shapes and sizes. And so as I've been cycling across America, I've been leaving a trail of robot stickers. Um, and all the other cyclists keep seeing them and posting them on Instagram. It's been pretty funny. But um, yeah, so it's just, a, it's just an old graphic that I've been uh, just kind of using through the years. And I gave, it an up, I gave him an update recently and yeah. gotten really popular. So he's your, your cycling mascot. Yeah, he goes yeah. where you go when you're on the bike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Fun. Yeah. And so, uh, so people can follow you uh, on coast to coast bike ride and know where you are and, and, uh, what's going on. Do you, do you blog daily? Yeah. And that's, um, another thing is I've gotten at this point with the bike trip, I've been writing, I write, I like to write, I don't know, 700 to 1100 words about what happened each day. And so I take my photographs, um, I write a blog post about what happened. I take my photographs. I put them all on a page. I'm also posting on Instagram under the name Bike Touring 999. And so I'm taking my Instagram photos and putting them on there. But I'm working really hard in this bike blog this summer. Um, and before I left, I actually cranked out. I built a queue of blog posts for Young Architect. And so I've slowly been dripping those out. One day it rained really hard and I I got all fired up about something about the exams. And so I, I, I've been writing a little bit of new content, but I've mostly been um, channeling all my energy into just writing about what's been happening on this trip. Um, I've got a GoPro, which I'm having a lot of fun with. Um, I've been messing around with all these different types of angles and stuff. And I ended up about a, maybe two or three weeks ago, I built a, a giant selfie stick that flies off the back of my bike. It looks like a big tail. Yeah. And it's really just a big boom. And it's holding my GoPro kind of behind me on my bike. So I've been recording all this footage of me riding my bicycle across America. And I've started to, I'm probably going to finish most of this when I get after the trip's over, but I started recording, uh, taking some of that footage and making like MTV style music videos and putting them up on YouTube. Yeah. I saw the first one when you first got that stick. I saw yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it was very cool. Yeah. It's been fun. Well, th- that's some story. It, and so when do you plan on being back in Portland? What's the date? Uh, I don't know yet. Um, I have a business conference I need to attend in the middle of August. I'm going to the World Domination Summit. I think you, we've t- you and I have talked yeah. a little bit yeah. about that. Um, yeah, I've gone for the past three years. So you have to be back by then. 
Uh, well, I think I'm going to be actually in the middle of Oregon once that happens. So I, I'm probably going to stash my bike somewhere and hop on a Greyhound and get back to Portland for that conference. And then after that's over, get back on my bike ride and hit the coast. So we'll yeah. see. Uh, so it'll probably be the middle of the end of August. I'll be done with this bike trip. Yeah. Well, we will follow you on uh, coast to coastbikeride.com. It should be a, a great, uh, great experience. And, and World Domination Summit is, is a talk really briefly about what that is. Because when you first hear that and you don't know what it is, you think it's some psycho uh, gathering, but it's, it's actually a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, so it's a conference that happens every summer in Portland, Oregon. Um, they've actually shrunk the conference. I think it started out with a group of 500, then it went to 1,000, then it was up to 3,000 people, and now they're shrinking it down to, I think, 1,000. Okay, so the World Domination Summit is a conference for creative people, and we have TED-style speeches. They rent out the Arlene Schnitzer Hall Theater yeah. in downtown Portland, and they have these, I don't know, keynote speeches that are all extremely inspiring, and there's just a lot of, it's not an entrepreneur thing, it's, it's kind of a, just a conference for people that are just making stuff happen. Yeah. Um, a lot of the inspiration for Young Architect, I've, I've gotten a lot of insight and I've met a lot of really interesting people at this conference who've, even though they're working on something completely different in a completely different realm, it's given me a lot of inspiration for what I wanted to do with writing my book, creating this program. Um, and so, yeah, I've, been, I've just been going to this conference every year just as kind of a source of inspiration and to, to stay connected to all these people that are just doing great projects. Yeah. It's it's a it's a conference for people who want to change the world, and make it a better place. Yeah, and and that's what you're doing. You're doing it with uh, with youngarchitect.com, and you're definitely doing it with uh, um, uh, coast to coast bike uh, bike ride dot com. And you're you're making a difference. And you're you're an inspiring. It's an inspiring story. You're an inspiring person. Thank you very much for sharing your story here at Entree Architect Podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, for doing what you're doing. Thanks. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 132. Hey, you know, I'm often asked the question, which BIM tool is best for us small firm architects? And how do we successfully make that transition from CAD to BIM? I hear this question all the time, inside and outside Entree Architect Academy. So, in response to your questions, Entree Architect has organized a free three-part webinar series to help you make that critical decision. On July 19th, 20th, and 21st, that's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, representatives from Vectorworks, ArchiCAD, and Revit will each present their products, show us how to get started, explain why their software is a great tool for small firm architects, and be available live to answer any questions that we might have. This is an exclusive special session webinar series, free for the entire Entree Architect community. To register, just go to entrearchitect.com slash BIM webinar. That's entrearchitect.com slash BIM webinar. It's free and it's for you. My name is Mark Arlapage and I am an entrepreneur architect and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next week.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.